0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We've had a little more than a week to try and digest the results of the German election and today Helen and I are joined by Matthew Karnitschnigg to try to make sense of what these elections mean for Germany, for Europe and for the world. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books which has its own weekly podcast recent episodes include Dominic West reading Patrick Lee Furmore, a mini-series of encounters with the lives and voices of women in medieval literature, and an interview with me about Peter Thiel, the subject of my latest LRB piece. Just search for the LRB podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Karnitschnig is the chief European correspondent for Politico, and he's based in Berlin, where he's been covering German politics for more than 20 years. He was in Berlin when we spoke to him on Wednesday morning, and we're going to try and make sense of all the different coalition permutations that might come out of this election. But we thought we should start by reminding all of us what actually happened. Maybe we should start because we are taking advantage of the benefit of um, A Week in a Bit's hindsight by just reminding ourselves and people listening what happened in the election, Matt, and did anything about the result 10 days ago surprise you? There was a lot of speculation beforehand, as there always is, and lots of uh, polling analysis. When the final result came through, was it what you were expecting?
1: The result was what I was expecting, given the polls, but I think I and a lot of other people were still surprised. It was one of these moments where when you actually see what has just happened, it's it really hits you. And, and what hit me was... That the CDU, Angela Merkel's party, that's obviously been running Germany for the past 16 years, suffered this historically poor result. Its worst result since World War II, and I think that has been reverberating ever since. So it was something that we knew was was coming, but once it actually hits, you know, I think that is is still a, a surprising moment, especially the, the fallout that we've seen since then.
0: And um, did you did did anything take you by surprise with the result? I mean, it was very close, we should remind people, it was less than two percentage points between the CDU, CSU and the S P D, the Greens who had been polling much higher. I mean, for for British listeners, it was a bit like Nick Clegg in two thousand and ten. There was a bit of green mania, but it f- fell away. And the Greens came in about fourteen percent. Was this what you were expecting?
2: I'm not sure I had clear expectations in the immediate days before, but I agree with what Matt said about the, the strikingness of the result, if you look at it from a historical perspective. The one qualification I would put to that is, is it was pretty clear, I think, once Armin Laschet was the, the CDU-CSU candidate that for Chancellor, that he was a pretty poor candidate and that the, the CDU were taking, from their point of view, an enormous risk. In having him as the Chancellor candidate and and obviously there'd been quite a lot of resistance within the party and alternative candidates had put themselves forward. So if you look at it from the perspective of would you expect a long incumbent party losing its long-standing Chancellor candidate and putting in her place someone who didn't look very good at campaigning and was unpopular within his own party to do well, I think you'd say, no, you wouldn't. And then the question would be, well, do these things usually matter in German politics in the way perhaps I would say in British politics? And I think there was a sort of line of argument that said, well, the chancellor candidate matters less in in German politics about parties. But I think that this shows that that, that that isn't the case and that Merkel had a big impact on German politics just in the sense of the perception of leadership as much as anything else.
0: And Matt, the the two main parties, the centre-left party and the centre-right party, so in the result, it was close. But polling suggests that um, between Olaf Scholz and Armin Lachette, there's a big difference in public perception. Scholz is broadly much more popular than his party, I think that's fair to say, and Lachette is less popular than his. So leadership clearly matters. And then the other thing that does seem to matter, political scientists are endlessly arguing about this. Do campaigns make a difference to election outcomes and you can find campaigns where they do for instance 2017 UK general election Theresa May's election the campaign clearly made a huge difference the 2019 UK general election I think the campaign made almost no difference this does look like one where the campaign did make a difference I mean Lachette, I think you correct me if I'm wrong got weaker during the campaign and Schultz got more popular is that fair
1: That's fair, although I I would argue that it was really more what happened outside the campaign that was crucial here, in particular, Laschet's response to the floods in Western
0: Germany. Yeah, sure. And and so, yeah, by campaign, I suppose I mean the sort of months leading up to the election rather than the years, that sort of distinction.
1: I mean, Germany, I think even compared to the UK maybe has a, a pretty short campaign season. The formal campaign lasts just a couple of months. And if, if you go back and, and look at the polling, even between Schultz and Laschet, Schultz didn't overtake Laschet until the end of June, early July. And, you know, that was before this incident that a lot of people might have seen where Laschet was caught laughing in the background in the flood zone while the German president was consoling the victims. He, he wasn't laughing about the flood victims, of course, but these pictures sort of came to define his campaign in a very negative way. But up until that point, Laschet seemed to be sailing into the chancellery, to be honest. He wasn't hugely popular, but neither were either of the other candidates. And I I think it's worth remembering that Schultz, in the end, prevailed, I think, because of his experience. He's a proven crisis manager. He's sort of a safe pair of hands, which I think a lot of Germans appreciate. And he seemed the closest thing to Merkel that they could get from these three candidates. So it's not that he's perceived as being a change candidate or, or somebody people were really enthused about. In fact, in a lot of the polling until the last month or so of the campaign, he was getting just over 30%. He was the most popular amongst the three. But uh, the even more popular category was somebody else. So I think this was a bit of an election where, where Germans were asked to choose their poison. And in the end, they went with him because they know him, they trust him, apparently, even though he's been sort of shrouded in scandal for much of the recent past. And more importantly, I think they, they just didn't like Laschet or think he was up to the job.
0: Endlessly on this podcast, we're talking about sort of maxims of politics that then get confounded by actual results. And there's another general maxim, which is that junior partners in coalitions tend to suffer in elections. But here we have Schultz, as you say, who's who's kind of implicated in what's happened in German politics over the last few years, I mean, there's arguments about whether this was a continuity election rather than change election. But he seems to abut that trend, too. Here we have someone who has served as a, you know, a deputy in an outgoing government, that government, the partnership, has in some senses been rejected here. And yet he's the beneficiary. So how's how's he managed to position himself as both the continuity candidate and in some sense, the change candidate? So I
1: think he's been very clever in the way that he's done this over the past year or so. Uh, And we we have to rewind a bit because the SPD was at about 14, 15 percent when they named him to be their chancellor candidate in August of, of 2020. That was very much a strategic move. A lot of people were questioning whether it was too early. And the reality was that nobody in the spd really wanted the job and there was even a debate about whether they should put forth a uh, a chancellor candidate given where they were in the polls if that was if that was really a, a realistic outcome for them and that had been preceded by a leadership battle within the spd which schultz actually lost to a pair of more leftist candidates who were still in charge of the party and, and and Schultz is very much a moderate and it was because of his sort of centrism that he lost that vote. And I, I think it's fair to say the SPD had a bit of a sort of you know, labor moment under under Corbyn there where the membership of the party expanded after the 2017 election. And it was mainly with people from the left of the political spectrum who, who became new members. And that really moved the base of the party to the left, which is why Schultz didn't win the leadership race. And yet when it came time to choose a chancellor candidate, he was the obvious choice because even then he was somebody who was broadly known in the public as a finance minister. He'd, he'd been the mayor of Hamburg and was sort of seen to have been uh, pretty successful there. So he started very early in this campaign, and I think that turned out to be, to come to your question, really the crucial factor, because the SPD for the past year has had this stability and he could concentrate on campaigning, whereas the the CDU was in this kind of permanent state of gyration over who was going to succeed miracle. They had various people leading the party and then, you know, it didn't work out. uh, And then they had to decide on a chancellor candidate as well. And they did that very late in the game. By the time that Laschet won that race, he was damaged, damaged goods. And he'd been in through this process, which was a little bit like an American primary process, where he basically been put through the rigmarole by the time he got the job. Which I think in the US is actually quite positive because it sort of grooms the candidates for prime time. But here, he was really the only one of the three candidates who had to do that. And I think you know, a lot of voters ended up seeing his warts very early, whereas Schultz wasn't forced to go in the same kind of debates and answer the same kind of hard questions, in part because nobody thought that he really had a, a realistic. Chance and he sort of quietly groomed himself and presented himself as the next Merkel. And um, some people might remember he was even using her rhombus shaped hand gesture towards the end of the campaign, sort of jokingly, but also very purposely, I think, as a sort of not so subtle message to voters that if they liked Merkel and wanted stability that he was going to be the the next best person. But as you say, it was very interesting from the junior partner perspective, because for years the SPD had been complaining about how it had been overshadowed in these grand coalitions with the CDU that Merkel had co-opted their agenda and that the SPD didn't get any credit for the... Um, stability and, and the economic prosperity in Germany over the past several years. And that was one of the main reasons that they said in 2017, after they did poorly in that election, that was when Martin Schulz was the, the candidate, that they wanted to go into opposition. And it, it was only when the effort to create a three-party coalition under the CDU collapsed that the SPD ultimately relented and, and went into the current grand coalition we have now.
2: I think that there's a there's a paradox in that if you look at the voting data in terms of when you break it down, you can see that the majority of German voters want to change. It's only really the Christian Democrat voters where that isn't the case. But it is the continuity Merkel candidate who is going to become, or is most likely, let's put it that way, most likely to become Chancellor and whose party's done the best. And I think if you want to the, the simplest explanation of that is the the shift of some Christian Democratic voters to the SPD wanting continuity Merkel. But I think that that fits in to Matt's point about the history of these grand coalitions and the way in which Merkel actually pushed the Christian Democrats into the space of the, the Social Democrats. And that, in that sense, Merkel wasn't a conventional Christian Democrat. So if we look and say three of the four governments that Merkel led were grand coalitions that involved the Social Democrats, and their part in it, I think, was as important in a substantive sense as as Merkel's part in it, because they were part of of shifting German politics into a certain kind of, of centrism. And on one sense, that is what has now prevailed in the... The relative success of the social democrats in this election the thing that, that complicates it though is back to the change point is actually the initiative in terms of how this government's going to be formed is actually going to be taken or is being taken i should say by the two parties that are more committed to change and away from that grand coalition i.e the free democrats and the greens If we look at it from the christian democrats point of view i think we shouldn't perhaps be surprised that they've been left in the position in which that they have because their Previous position in the centre was so Merkel dependent and so dependent on her shifting into traditional social democratic territory. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't significant differences with Shorts, I'd say, particularly in relation to labour market issues and trade unions, but there's still very considerable overlap.
0: That then leads on to the question of what coalition is going to emerge as a result of this election. And it's another, I don't know if it's a paradox, but it's another puzzle here. Certainly it puzzles me. As Helen mentioned, the, the running is being made at the moment by. The FDP, and the Greens. And what those two parties have in common, the two smaller parties relative to the centre-left, centre-right main parties, is that they are committed to change, and the rhetoric is much more about change. But it does look like change in different directions. The Greens are very committed to a range of policies that involve a lot more state involvement in the economy, in environmental taxes, in regulation, The FDP are traditionally associated with free market solutions. When I was looking at the data for the election and some of the commentary on it, one of the points that was made is there is in Germany, as there is in many other countries, and it's something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, a significant generational divide in voting patterns. So the the votes for both the CDU and the SPD tended to be from older voters. And among the under 30s, The party that came first were the Greens, the party that came second were the FDP. So they also, if one can put it like this, in some sense represent younger voters, they are more future oriented, but they do seem to have very different conceptions of what that future looks like. So Matt, how does this work? How do those two parties form a common position from which they can then negotiate between the two possible candidates for Chancellor?
1: Well, I think we're seeing that evolve as we speak. They they came out right after the election and the two smaller parties, the FDP and the Greens, got together to have sort of a pre-negotiation, as it were, before they went ahead and, and talked to, to the larger parties. And I think also to signal that it was going to be up to them to choose which of the larger parties they wanted to go into coalition with. And I think that there is a bit of a... Zeitgeist element here. As you say, these parties are quite different in terms of their agendas in many ways, but there, there is overlap and significant overlap when you're talking about issues such as civil liberties, freedom, as, as they like to call it. Also, in terms of foreign policy in, in many areas, if you're talking about uh, Russia, the rule of law in Europe, China, even so I think that there are areas where there is common ground, where it becomes more difficult is uh, when you get into taxation specifically. But everything that we've heard out of both parties in recent days is that they believe that these differences are bridgeable. It, it, it's been interesting to to watch from afar that the mood music between the two smaller parties who are generationally also much closer to one another, in terms of the leading personalities, is much more positive than it has been between the the more established parties and and those smaller parties. So I, I think there is a definitely a sense here for the for the first time since I've been covering German politics, which is uh, about twenty five years, that you could see a significant change, but not necessarily because the larger party wants it, but because it's sort of being driven from below, if you will. And, and one of the interesting things we've heard in recent days is that Olaf Schultz, the SPD uh, leader, has been talking about change himself all of a sudden, which is not something that, that he discussed during the campaign. And so he also appears to be trying really to woo the FDP and the Greens with, with promises of, uh, Real reform here, and and it is a unique dynamic in the German context where you have the the larger party only with twenty six percent about. So it, it does give the the other parties more leverage, and of course, it would be the first time that Germany has had at the federal level a three three party coalition.
0: Helen, do you have a sense of what this intangible change looks like? I'm still, I kind of, I can I can hear the. Rhetoric, but what does it actually mean, the kind of change that both the FDP and the Greens might embrace, particularly in relation to the environment and the economy, that would actually count as change?
2: Well, I, I think that both, in very different ways, like to think of themselves as, or presenting themselves as, modernizing parties, modernizing the German economy. I would say that digitalization perhaps was something that they both. Had in common a desire to move Germany away from an economy that is as sort of the old industry centric as the as the German economy has been, and I think that Matt's right when he says that on on foreign policy and the ways in which foreign policy now also is about economic policy, and um, particularly in this instance Germany's relationship with China, these two parties take positions that are somewhat outside at least the, the Grand Coalition consensus. I think actually shifting Germany into a different economic relationship with China would be a whole other thing. I think that the the interesting question in a way, though, is, is how is it that they have managing to take as much initiative as they have in context in which the possibility of a Jamaica coalition, so with Laschet as the Chancellor rather than with Schultz, as the Chancellor looks so weak, because you would you would have thought that the leverage comes from the fact that they have options, or they appear to have options, that either you could have a coalition with a Christian Democratic Chancellor, or you could have a coalition with a Social Democratic Chancellor, and so it was the two junior partners in the coalitions, which would be the same, two junior partners, whichever the coalition was, get to have more influence than you would normally um, expect. But given the internal state of the, the Christian Democratic Party and the way in which it's responded to this election defeat, then it doesn't look like a plausible chancellor, not least because he doesn't seem to be able to maintain sufficient support within his own party. So at that point, you would actually expect that the initiative is actually Schultz's because it's pretty difficult to see at the moment anyway what what the alternative would be. And in some sense, though, I think the question has to come back to is there really enough common ground over some of the economic Um, questions between the, not between the Greens and the FDP, but between the Social Democrats and the Free Democrats in order to reach a coalition agreement that could be the basis of a stable government. Because on a whole set of issues, both in relation to Germany's domestic economic policy, also in relation to the the Eurozone, they're a long way away from each other.
1: I think the danger here is that because these parties are pulling in different directions, that You will have another coalition in Germany where you have stability, which a lot of people want, but that's not necessarily a good thing. And you mentioned digitalization, uh, which all the parties say is a big priority and which the the Merkel government for the past 16 years has always held up as this urgent goal. And it it just hasn't moved forward in, in the way that had been promised or that would have been Necessary, and I think that is something that is really gotten to the point where both the Greens and the FDP realize that something dramatic needs to happen to improve Germany's standing in the digital world, and that its entire economy is at risk of going the way of the steam engine if if they don't act quickly. So, you know, I, I think that those parties are pushing more in that direction. And it, the problem is, is that the SPD is uh, very, very traditional in many ways. And they look at a lot of these issues uh, in terms of gig workers and so forth from a um, purely regulatory point of view and just would, would caution that you could very quickly end up in a kind of lowest common denominator policy if this if this coalition goes, goes forward.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So I want to come on in a second to the question of the relationship between these economic issues and supply chain questions and relationships with China. How, as Helen said, economics and foreign policy now Go together in ways that aren't at all easy to resolve. But just to ask a slightly parochial question, sort of seen from the UK, there was a bit of commentary after the result came in that um, Schultz and the SPD were offering hope to centre left parties in other countries to the idea that a party, as you said, Matt, that had sort of been written off 18 months ago and looked to be suffering from the malaise of all centre left parties, now looks like it might be leaving the government in Europe's most significant economic power anyway. And lessons were drawn for the Labour Party in the UK, Kirst Starmer, don't give up yet, and so on. Now, of course, if, if the Labour Party polls 26% in the next UK general election, it will be wiped out. And as he also said, there was a point where it looked like the comparison was the other way, it looked like the SPD was split, there was a kind of more radical youth wing, more Corbynite pushing in one direction, and then this more traditional centrist wing pushing in another, and the, the centrist wing is dominant in the figure of Schultz, but I'm assuming some of those divisions haven't gone away. Do you think there is a, a lesson here for other centre-left parties? So much, to me, seems to hang on electoral systems, not just that 26% would see the Labour Party wiped out in the UK, but in a, essentially two-party system. same with the Democrats in the United States. The, the party of the centre-left has to accommodate people who in Germany would vote for Die Linke or for the Greens, And if you know if you can hold your twenty six together, you have a chance. Are there parallels here, or is this is this actually sort of pie in the sky for the Keir Starmer to think? Oh, Schultz is showing me how to do it.
1: I I personally think it might be a bit of pie in the sky because, as you say, I mean these systems are are quite different. The situations are quite distinct, and if you think that you know half of the people who voted for the for the SPD said they did so solely because of Schultz. You know, that gives you an indication of how volatile these voting habits have become here. Um, and I think not only in Germany. So I, I think it's hard to make the case that that Germans voted for the center left. They voted for Schultz because they wanted Merkel and couldn't have her. And you see in the data, you see where those Merkel votes went, and uh, the vast majority of them went to the to the SPD. So I I, I don't know that you know it really offers deep lessons for the center left uh, elsewhere in Europe. I mean, I've, I've seen these these stories as well, and we, we journalists are always looking for, for for patterns. And if you find three examples, you can uh, sort of declare a trend. But I think if you look under the hood a bit, it really comes down to the personalities mainly these days and the candidates rather than the program. Because the SPD, the kind of Corbinite faction, as, as you called it, you know, within the SPD, they're, they're still there. And I think it's going to be quite challenging for Schultz in the years to come, should he become chancellor, to keep his parliamentary group in line. Because a lot of the new people who are joining the Bundestag now, they come from that faction and they come from the youth wing of the SPD, the Yuzos. The so these are issues that have yet to be settled within, within the SPD. And, and this, in fact, was the main argument that, that Laszlo tried unsuccessfully to use uh, in the campaign is that, you know, you're, you're voting for Schultz, but you're going to get something quite different. Yeah, you
2: know, I think that the big difference, I mean, leaving aside the electoral system, is that actually, in the German case, you had Angela Merkel, who was actually trying to help the SPD for the the last four years. I mean, after the 2017 general election um, in Germany, she made Schultz the finance minister, replacing Wolfgang Schirbel, who'd been a long-standing Christian Democratic um, finance minister. And the, the Social Democrats were given several other plum ministries as well, much to the dismay of some people in the Christian Democrat Party. So actually, in terms of Schultz's ability to play continuity Merkel, then Merkel was a pretty significant part of the explanation for that. Because if you look at what happened after the 2017 election, the Social Democrats had done pretty badly. And yet, in some sense, they were rewarded once the the post-election politics moved from trying to construct the, the Jamaica coalition with the, with the Free Democrats and the Greens into going back to a grand coalition. So in, in that sense, I think the Social Democrats have, have reaped the reward of, of the way in which Merkel responded to what happened last time.
0: What we've been talking about and the, the shifts in German politics, the focus has been on the last 18 months, essentially the landscape looks very different now than it did 18 months ago. And if you take not a sort of British view, but a Martian eye view of this, someone would think, well, the big thing that's happened in the last 18 months is the pandemic. And we've just had a conversation about a, a pandemic election, and we haven't mentioned it once. And I'm not saying we're wrong not to have mentioned it, but it is a puzzle here. And it's a question that's being asked about elections generally, starting with the US presidential election. What people think are pandemic elections then seem to be explained by everything other than the pandemic. Matt, did the pandemic change the shape of German politics? Has it? Is it continuing to? To what extent, or even the conversations that are going on now about possible coalitions having to factor in different attitudes or responses to the pandemic?
1: I think the focus we've had on the, on the term stability is sort of an indicator of that, is that the pandemic rattled Germany, just like it rattled many other countries. And I think made people feel that, well, we we live in an increasingly unpredictable world. And uh, if, if you look at the at the campaign itself, you know, these campaigns tend to be just sort of snapshots of whatever kind of happening at at that moment uh, in the country where the election is. And, and Germany is no different in that regard. So during the campaign, the pandemic had largely receded and the, the vaccination campaign was very, very successful here and, and so forth. So it, it, it wasn't as omnipresent as it had been six months earlier, let's say. If they'd had the election in March, I think, you know, it would have featured uh, much more prominently. But I, I think it was in in the background. And I I think it has led to this deep sense of unease in Germany about the country's place in the world and and how it reacts to the various kind of turbulences that uh, are coming its way now. And I think, you know, there is this sense in Germany that a lot of Germans would like to just be left alone and have their country act like a. Kind of Switzerland in the middle of of, of Europe, and I, I think that the pandemic kind of was another reminder of why Germany is more comfortable not engaging so much with the rest of the world, which is also a paradox given its its reliance on um, exports and and so forth. So I think that the, the 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 pandemic helped Schultz, and not just because he had this reputation as finance minister for successfully leading you know the economic recovery efforts and so forth. I think it, it was also because you know there's this sense that the world is an un- has become a very unpredictable place, more unpredictable than anybody can remember and uh, so it's better to kind of go with the devil you know.
2: I think if you think of the German election in terms of party fragmentation, you know, hence the fact that there's going to be a, a three-party coalition, for the first time, if you leave aside the the Christian Social Union question. I think what you might say is is that the pandemic has changed the focus, if you like, or the epicentre, perhaps, of the party fragmentation. Because if you go back to the early 2020, the crisis in German politics was what had happened in Thuringia, and the the moment when the regional Christian Democrats had participated in a vote that had used AFD votes, alternative for Deutschland votes, to produce a a regional government led, I think, by the the Free Democrats. And that was a moment that Merkel described as a, a bad day for democracy. So the focus was very much on whether there could be coalitions, particularly at the regional level, that could work excluding certainly the afd but possibly Die Linke as well and these are two parties that we haven't spoken about so far because leaving aside the afd and bits of former eastern germany they didn't do particularly well the party in terms of outside the the grand coalition politics that did improve the most was was the greens so i think there is something that can be said about the impact that the pandemic had on the perceptions of the two parties on the right and the left that were considered in some sense outside the, the constitutional norms of German politics, at least at the the federal level, and that that moment that was there at the beginning of 2020 is not what has materialised in this election.
0: And Helen, can I get, get your response to what Matt talked about there? I mean, he called it a paradox, maybe we talk too much about paradoxes, but there is something really hard to wrap your head around in the, the question of Germany's place in the world coming out of an election whereas Matt said, there's a desire for a certain kind of continuity, but also that sense that Germans often want the world to leave Germany alone. And yet the German economy is completely plugged in to a whole set of relationships that have profound geopolitical consequences on energy because of Nord Stream and Russia, because of The way that the German economy, the industrial manufacturing economy, works reliant on imports in order to produce its export-based goods. And that leads to a deep relationship with China. And this then throws into question Germany's relationship with other European countries and also primarily with the United States. There is no way that Germany in this interconnected, dangerous, unstable world can be Switzerland. This must be one of the things that's going to put pressure on whatever government emerges from these coalition talks. That is a circle that is hard to square, isn't it? As it were, the desire for a quiet life, for continuity, and what are likely to be increasing strains on Germany's international relations.
2: Yeah, I think it, it's pretty striking that the geopolitical issues, let's call them that, um, were largely absent from the this election campaign. And yet, in lots of ways, Germany is at the the epicenter of a set of really difficult questions. Whether that be Russia's influence in European gas markets, not just in terms of the supply of gas, but the means of transportation of that gas, so the Nord Stream issue. Whether that be not just Germany's relationship with economic relationship with China, but the EU's economic relationship with China. Given it was Merkel who pushed the the comprehensive investment agreement ratification with China, the ratification for which is now stalled. And last but certainly not least, the question of what Germany's position is in relation to uh, Macron's push post what happened with the French-Australian submarine contract for European, as he sees it, European strategic autonomy. And what that means both in relation to energy issues between the US and Russia and what it means in terms of the US-China relationship and where the EU fits into that. Now, I think if you take the facts on the ground where Germany is concerned, it is actually, though, quite difficult to move these things because Nord Stream is all but done. Germany is not going to change its dependency on Russian gas, and it's certainly not now going to go back to having supported the construction of Nord Stream. It's not going to go back to starting to uh, have that gas come via pipelines um, running through Ukraine. The economic relationship with China is entrenched. It's not just about its exports. It's about the actual trading infrastructure around um, that, and Germany's also not going to start spending a lot more money on defence, and if it doesn't, that makes... Macron's ambitions for strategic autonomy in European defence pretty forlorn. So in one sense, I think you might say is, is that the Germany is actually not trying to be Switzerland. It's actually got its position in the world, and it's kind of almost like bedded into like various structures. The politics of it is around that this causes pretty serious disquiet to some other European Union states, not least France, and it causes some serious issues in the Atlantic relationship. But can any of it really change very quickly? I would say it's it's very difficult to see how it does. And so in in that sense, I think that there's a certain... um, that Germany sort of laid its position down of how it wants actually to engage in the world, not under a facade, but under a kind of appearance, perhaps at least, of of saying, actually, we we just want to be left to ourselves.
1: I agree. I think that there is a broad consensus on most of these issues. And when I ask uh, German uh, elites why they think these issues weren't discussed in the campaign, that's the answer that they give, basically, is that there's not a lot of disagreement on these key issues. I agree that Nord Stream 2, um, that issue is is basically over, I think. It's going to go forward and the Germans have made their decision there. And, and certainly with, with Schultz, uh, assuming he becomes chancellor, that's not something that his party would advocate pulling out from that project or backing away from it even in, in any way. And yet, I, I do think that they're going to face a difficult reckoning probably sooner rather than, than later in Germany, because you know the degree to which these issues have, have been ignored in the public debate, I think is extraordinary because even if there is broad consensus we don't really know that because they, they haven't really debated the question of strategic autonomy for example or how Germany should position itself vis-a-vis China with all of the pressure it's now facing from the United States to lock arms and to take a more aggressive approach uh, towards China you know th- these are things that are that are going to come up and you know, if you look at the at the Merkel years, the sort of two crises really that defined the the last decade of her time in office, the the Euro crisis and the refugee crisis, those were also things that nobody was was talking about ahead of time. And even though there were there were signs of storms on on the horizon, and I think this kind of reactive quality of um, German politics under Merkel. Is, is likely going to uh, continue, unfortunately. So they'll, they'll keep talking about issues like the minimum wage uh, was something that uh, there was a lot of discussion about in this campaign, not not introducing a minimum wage, they already have one, but raising it. I, I was uh, asked recently, just a couple of days ago, by a, by a German journalist, how this German discussion about the minimum wage, what uh, people outside of Germany thought about it. And they were surprised to to hear that, well, nobody had even noticed that there was a debate about the, uh, the minimum wage in Germany. So I, I I think it's also just their self-awareness on these issues. Is I'm, I'm often kind of, even amongst elites, I'm, I'm quite surprised that they don't understand the degree to which the outside world, I think, uh, is expecting them to declare their position on these very important issues. And you mentioned AUKUS would be, would be another example of that. Uh, there's been effectively no discussion about that
0: here. Just to go back to something you said earlier, when we were talking about what connects the the Free Democrats, the SDP and the Greens, you said there was a kind of rhetoric around freedom, um, human rights, a more hawkish attitude to China in particular. And yet, as we've just been describing, so much of that relationship is now embedded. And it's very hard to, to shift. Is that just rhetoric? I mean, there's also been talks that Anna Baerbock has been talking about the need for subsidies and and major government intervention to manage an energy transition, not just in order to green the German economy, not just for the purpose of modernisation and enhancing technological competitiveness, but also because if that doesn't happen, Germany will be undercut by subsidised and cheaper Chinese energy supply is that just theater
1: i wouldn't say that it's just theater but i think that it's going to run up against the reality that germany has built up a dependence on china that it's not going to be able to undo china is now its its largest trading partner and has been for the past 5 years what what happens in china in terms of regulation is is already determining what german car makers do for example and that is something that the Greens, I think in particular, are going to have to come to terms with. And I suspect that in a coalition, the, the Greens who are obviously really pushing their their climate agenda are going to have to compromise on on other issues. And I think this is going to be one, the relationship with China, where they're going to back down because the SPD is going to say that too many German jobs are at stake here. If you look at just VW alone and, and the investments and the exports that that it has to china are extraordinary and uh, these are the the realities i think that are going to kind of keep germany in this middle position it has taken in recent years between the united states on the one hand russia and china you know you'll you'll hear some harsh rhetoric also towards towards russia russia i think is really the model for German foreign policy in this regard, Merkel advocated sanctions against Russia for the annexation of the Crimea and, and the war in Ukraine, and so forth. But at the same time, you know they're pushing forward with North Stream two, and with China, you're seeing a similar pattern where you know they'll be very critical about what's going on with the Uyghurs, but at the same time, you know Merkel is is, is flying into. China with a, a large delegation of German CEOs uh, and is negotiating the investment pact with uh, Xi Jinping and so forth. So they've become quite good at compartmentalizing these issues uh, to keep the relationships, at least the economic relationship, going. And they obviously have this, this history of, of Ostpolitik, which I think is something that is... Uh, seen across the political spectrum. It's not just a, an SPD nostalgia for the Willy Brandt years. I think that also within the CDU, there's there's a sense that, that Ostpolitik won the Cold War for the West and has allowed Germany to uh, maintain fairly friendly relationships with Russia. And I think that's something that they want to continue in their in their dealings with China.
2: The place I think where the tension, in terms of Germany's position in relation to other EU countries, may well manifest itself most quickly, is over the energy issues and the fact that the or the influence of the the German non nuclear power position or anti nuclear power position on the EU's energy transition commitments, and I think you can already see that France's is moving to ally with a number of southern European countries, Spain in particular. I think actually the one East European country, I think it was the Czech Republic, uh, uh, signed this letter to sort of basically pushing the the European Commission to to revisit some of the assumptions of what the energy transition um, will look like. And the nuclear issue, I think, is one where essentially that Germany has been able not to force other member states to go down the same path, of decommissioning um, nuclear power, but to produce a commitment at the EU EU level to an energy transition in which nuclear power is not particularly featuring. And that isn't the French position, the French having a a strong nuclear power uh, sector. And as the present gas crisis plays out, both in relation to the supply of Russian gas coming into Europe and the means by which it is coming in, because it does look like Gazprom is cutting down the amount that's coming through the pipelines in Ukraine. I think it will be harder for the German position to dominate how that the EU reacts to this gas crisis. And I think that that has the potential to politicise, in part at least, these these questions in um, Germany about which, as Matt says, there has been actually reasonably strong consensus thus far.
1: No, I, I think that the nuclear politics is also a, a real blind spot, uh, because the, the Germans, in, in terms of Germany's policy towards towards its neighbors, because Germany uh, really feels that it has the moral high ground on, on this issue. And, you know, this was one of the justifications for their energy policies, this energy transformation in Germany, was that they needed to push forward with decommissioning the nuclear power plants to set an example. And then other countries would kind of see what a good idea was and get behind them. And, and now they look back and, and there's, nobody, there's nobody there. So that is definitely, especially if... if uh, energy prices uh, continue to rise as i think most people sort of think they will in the in the medium term going to be a, a a very difficult issue for them and i think the other issue that the the next government whoever is leading it is going to have to uh, deal with is this question of loosening the uh, stability and growth pact within the eurozone as as countries continue to cope with the after effects of the, the of the pandemic and and this is something that uh, the the FDP would naturally oppose. So I think that's going to make it for a, a fairly rocky start to whatever uh, government emerges, assuming that it, it includes the, the FDP and the Greens.
0: So one last question. It's the Schadenfreude question. Um, there was quite a lot of coverage in, in the British newspapers of an article written by it's Peter Tida, I think, um, a built journalist. A headline when it was republished in The Times was, Oh, the delicious schadenfreude Germans' grin at Britain's labour shortages and fuel crisis, saying that we reap what we sow if we're going to leave the European Union. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we don't have people to drive our lorries, deliver our fuel, and uh, we're going to lose Christmas and everything else. And Germans will take pleasure in that. And yet everything that we've discussed suggests that no one, particularly not a complicated and interdependent economy, like Germany is immune from at the moment these supply chain issues. There's a vulnerability there. Any economy, and we talked, you talked briefly, Matt, there about questions around the minimum wage. As we speak today, Boris Johnson in the UK is going to give a speech at the Conservative Conference in which he's going to talk about how Brexit is going to enable a transition to a higher wage economy, but no one knows quite how that's going to happen. But economies that both want to raise wages but also are dependent upon various forms of imported cheap labor is schadenfreude appropriate here do you think i personally don't
1: think so and it's not something that i've detected i mean maybe on the fringes it's something you know people might might joke about but i think that there is a lot of unease about what has happened with brexit the germans tend to like the brits and are genuinely uh upset that they're no longer in the EU. And I I think there might be a a bit of, well, you know, they they should have known this going into it, but I don't think anybody feels a a sense of, of schadenfreude about, you know, the difficulties that the UK is having. I mean, maybe, maybe more so in France actually than, than in Germany. In Germany, I would say it's a bit more foreboding than, um, than any kind of uh, you know mirth uh,
0: and is that foreboding because among other things these aren't just british problems i mean that you know as well the, there's something as well as the short-term issues there's something structural going on here and it's and it's happening everywhere
1: absolutely and i, I think there is a sense especially in the business community that things could very quickly go off the rails here and r- earlier this week i, I met with a, a group of Mittelstand, uh, these are these small and medium sized businesses in Germany with with the owners of some Mittelstand companies. And they were telling me that, you know, their their order books are full at the moment, but they're extremely worried that the, the sentiment uh, is quite poor because there's just a sense that the government isn't focusing on the issues that need to be addressed, in particular, the digitalization, and that the country and Europe. Are being left behind in this uh, global competition between uh, the US and China and, and so forth, and because of the after effects of Brexit. So I, I don't think that there's a lot of optimism here about uh, Germany's short-term future or Europe's short-term future.
0: You can follow Matt's work at Politico. He is a brilliant analyst of German and European politics. At the end of our conversation, I asked him when Germany might have a new government and he said that German politicians are promising it'll be all over by Christmas. That's not a phrase that inspires masses of confidence that people are already taking bets on whether Angela Merkel actually will be giving the annual New Year's address. Either way, we'll be coming back to this story. In our regular slot, in a fortnight's time, I'm going to be talking to Lea Ippi, who's been on Talking Politics before. She is the author of the best book I've read this year. It's called Free, and it's her memoir of her childhood growing up in communist Albania and then the transition through to what sometimes gets called a free society. It's a book about family. It's a book about revolution. And it is a book about the nature of freedom. And we're going to be talking about all of those things and more. And we're going to have a bonus episode the week after that. Helen and I are in conversation live with Hilary Mantel as part of the LRB season about power behind the throne. The event's happening at Conway Hall in London. If you'd like to get a ticket, I think there are still a few left, but you can also watch it online. Just go to lrb.co.uk to find out more but we'll be putting it out as a special extra episode of Talking Politics. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Helen?
2: I I thought it was a good place
0: to end. I don't know. You don't want to talk about Schadenfreude.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say something, but it was just sarcastic.